Let's go to the Lord in prayer now as we come toward our time in God's word. We are so thankful, Lord, for family, and we look for your blessing on all of the families as we gather here online and together in this auditorium. Lord, may we follow you tenaciously and not give up in a day when there are so many struggles that we face. We are thankful, Lord, that you have called us as your people to gather, and we've gathered in spite of our differences of ages and ethnicities and all kinds of different things, but we love Jesus, and we're so grateful for what he has done for us, changing our lives, and may our children see that in our lives, and may they thirst to know him, and may they follow him. And Lord, now we're coming to your word, and we need your word in our lives. So would you please teach us today? We need the help of your Holy Spirit to recalibrate our minds in accordance with your word. This passage is going to challenge us, Father. This is tough stuff. And a lot of questions in our world being asked about you. Some of them are in our text today. So teach us your path. Thank you for what you'll do in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we're all into the whole concept in our culture of justness and fairness. Everybody wants things just. Everybody wants things fair. Prejudice is out. It's bad. No favoritism. It's all about being fair to everyone. I suppose it wouldn't take a whole lot to go into any courtroom in America today and see a judge making a ruling, and there are people that think it's fair or it's not fair. It's just or it's not just. Certainly, we see this in other phases of life, even in our entertainment. You go to a a sporting event, and there's an umpire out there, there's a referee out there, and people think the calls are right or they're not. It is amazing how divided we are over the issues of justice and fairness. Years ago, back when uh, younger, I played in a fairly competitive softball league, and I still remember a couple of our umpires, one who was particularly good, I can picture him right now in my mind, and one who was particularly, well, not so good. He was a nice enough guy, he was an older gentleman, but he wasn't quite as quick mentally as he probably once was in his life, and his eyesight was going. He was a paid ump. I remember distinctly his last year of umpiring. The league did not renew his contract for the next year. I specifically remember remember playing in a couple of games where literally everybody on both teams and all the fans in the stands knew he blew the call. Some of them showed it by laughing, others just rolled their eyes, and some were, well, we shall say, just very verbose about their complaints. I remember his blank look, part mouth open, you know. Everybody knew it but him. Fairness is difficult. Sometimes we make our best judgment calls, and everybody in the room knows we messed up but us. Fairness is tough. I think back to the days when I was a teenager, and 
I was growing in my smarts about life like teenagers do. They're getting their grip on life a little bit. And I had some pretty big questions about the way my mom and dad were acting and treating me. And I didn't feel it was fair. And I didn't feel it was just. And then when I turned, got into my 20s, I began to think, oh, my dad's getting smarter these days. And by the time I got to 30 plus, I realized dad always was smarter than me. I just didn't see it at the time when I was a teenager. Doesn't mean all of his decisions were right, but he had a much bigger concept of life than I did. And I was making my judgments on fairness and justice based on my limited view. I think when it comes to the Christian faith, a lot of people make their judgments on God and what God considers just and what God considers fair. They make their judgments on a very limited basis. We all have limitations. We're very quick to point out we're not perfect people, and yet God is perfect. If we're not perfect and God is perfect, there's going to be some conflict. It's going to leave us with some pretty big questions. Today's passage brings us to some more some more big questions. Last week, we were looking at some big teachings in the book of Romans on subjects which are really hard to get your hands around and understand. Subjects like election, how God selects some for salvation, but not all. Fair? Is that just? Today, we're looking at the other side of the coin, the ones who were not elect for salvation. Today, we're looking at the ones who are bypassed. What do we do with this? Is this fair? Is this just? Does God choose who will be saved and who will not be? Or do we make the choices? Do we choose him or not choose him? It's a little easier to handle if we make the choices and God doesn't. If God makes them, it's harder to handle. Which way does it work? And interestingly, as we study different sections of the Bible, God's word seems to say God chooses and we choose. How is that possible? Studies like this introduce us to a God who is on a far greater level than what we are. I appreciate the fact that Dan led off the service today by reading Isaiah 58, uh, 55, verses 8 and 9 in particular, which we're going to put on the screen here for you. God says, My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. As high as the heavens are, higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. God's ways are so far beyond us. We look at how he can select us and how we also select him, and we say those two things can't go together. Yet in the mind of God, who is on a far different level of rationale than we are, they work perfectly well together. We look at it and say it can't be, and it doesn't seem fair. God is perfect. We're imperfect. There's going to be conflict. His ways are far beyond our ways. This passage today that we are looking at is helpful in this direction. 
It helps to strengthen our faith, even if we don't have all of the answers. It helps us to better understand how our God works, even though his ways are far greater than ours, and we can't understand how he works. And finally, it assists us to try to explain these difficulties to others who don't get it. I'm reading today from Romans chapter 9, starting in verse 14. Please notice as I read how many questions are posed in this text. And once I've read the passage, I will come back to you with four questions about how God operates that I think will help summarize some of the difficulty of this passage. So what then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. It does not, therefore, depend on man's desires or efforts, but on God's mercy. For the scriptures say to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. Wow. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who resists his will? But who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Shall, oh, shall what is formed say to him who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of Clay, some pottery for noble purposes, and some for common use? What if God, choosing to show his wrath and making his power known, bore with great patience the objects of wrath prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory? Even us, whom he also called out, not only from the Jews, but also to the Gentiles. As he says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people, and I will call her my beloved who is not my loved one. And it will happen that in the very place where it is said to them, you are not my people, they will be called the sons of the living God. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the Israelites be like the sand of the seas, only a remnant will be saved, for the Lord will carry out his sentence on earth with speed and finality. It is just as Isaiah said previously, unless the Lord Almighty had left us descendants, we would have become like Sodom. We would have been like Gomorrah. What then shall we say? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith, but Israel who pursued the law of righteousness has not attained it? Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, 
but as if it were by works. They stumble over the stumbling stone. As it is written, See, I lay in Zion a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. May God add his blessing to the, teach, to the reading of his word, and may he also add his blessing to the attempts at teaching it here. I want to give some understanding of this passage through the use of four questions. The first question, starting in verse 14, is, is God just in saving only some? I mean, couldn't he save everyone? Wouldn't that be better? Is God playing favorites when he, when he saves only some from their sin? Paul begins with the statement, what shall we say? Is God unjust? This is the subject he's dealing with. And he replies categorically, not at all. It is a big statement to make. What Paul is saying is that it is absolutely impossible for God to act unfairly. Is God unfair? No, he can't act unfair. God is the very definition of fairness. He is fair by his nature. If we think he has done something unfair, it is we who have the incorrect view. We have a less complete view, a smaller view of God. It is not complete. We don't understand him for who he really is. We just think we understand him and we disagree with him. But let's be clear. God is not fair as humans consider fairness. He is perfectly fair. We're the ones who mess up when it comes to perfect fairness. All we can do is think the best we can think. And you know what? Some people just don't want to hear this. They want to hold God accountable because it's not fair as they think fair should be. God is perfect, and his choices are always perfect. He is quoting in this passage from Ezekiel, uh, from Exodus 33. What shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. And then he goes on to say, and so here's Moses, the comedy made to Moses in Exodus 33. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. In other words, I will give my mercy to whoever I want to give it to. And I will give my compassion to whomever I want to give it to. And it will be right, and it will be fair, and it will be okay. How can that be right, fair, and okay? Because none of us deserve mercy. None of us deserve compassion. And it's not based on what we do to receive it. It was based on his sovereign choice. And this is something many will not want to hear. Paul goes on in verse 17, and he illustrates this with Pharaoh. He says, for the scriptures say regarding Pharaoh, the Pharaoh of Egypt, I raised you up for this very purpose that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all of the earth. Moses went to Pharaoh and he said, let my people go. And Pharaoh said, no. And the text says, 
Pharaoh hardened his heart against the Lord. The text says it several times. He hardened his heart against the Lord. The text says several times, and God hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. God hardened his heart more. How does that work? The text says, God created, he raised him up for this very purpose, that he might display his power and that his name might be proclaimed in all the earth. What God did with Pharaoh was to display his divine power. Verse 18 goes on and says, Therefore God had mercy on whom he wanted to have mercy on the Israel, the Jewish people, and he hardened whom he wanted to harden. So he hardened Pharaoh, and he had mercy on the Jewish people, and they escaped Egypt. In the plan and the providence of God, this is what he decided to do. Exodus teaches that Pharaoh hardened his heart. It teaches that God hardened his heart. But let's be very clear. To the degree that Pharaoh hardened his heart, he was wrong and should be punished. It's as though God comes along and hardens his heart further. How do I explain that? I don't know. I cannot. These four questions will not answer everything about God, but they will help us discover a side that we often forget about our God. Question number two, starting in verse 19, is God just to hold us accountable? I mean, is it fair if he hardens your heart? Can God really, can God really judge you for that? Paul goes on in verse 19 and says, one of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? I mean, who can resist God? If God hardens your heart, why, is that fair? Good question from a human perspective. Paul chooses not to answer the question directly. Instead, he gives us insight why we struggle with this question. He says in verse 20, but who are you, old man, to talk back to God? Ooh, Paul pushed back. Who are we to question God? Who are we to call uh, to talk back to him? Paul continues and says, what is, for, what is form says to him, uh, shall what is form say to the one who forms it, why did you make me? And it's the illustration here, the last part he gives it, does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay pottery that is noble purposes and for common purposes? I thought it was the potter who has the right to make the clay any way he wants, for something cheap, something that will be disposed of, versus something of noble purpose. That is the potter's call. Here the clay is saying, hey, whoa, 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 that's not fair. That's not, I, I want, I want. The potter makes that call. And this again is something that many people do not want to hear. There is a need for people to humble themselves before God and admit that God is not accountable to us. We are accountable to him. God is the one in charge. It's his universe. It's a tough message. As we say, you can't fight city hall. Again, some human beings simply do not want to hear this. And then 
their hearts are hardened further. The third question, verse 22, is God just to condemn some? Some he gives mercy to. Is he just to condemn those who are not receiving mercy? Paul answers this with some of the hypothetical situations, with the what-ifs. What if God chose to show his wrath and make his power known on people like Pharaoh, born out of great patience, the objects of his wrath? What if God chose to do that? What, just suppose, just suppose for a minute, God chose to show his wrath and his power toward people who reject him. He did it with great patience. He bore patiently with them, but they experience his wrath. On the other hand, what if? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy? That would be you and me. We're the objects of his mercy. What if he did this with Pharaoh so the rest of us could see he's so merciful to us, he provided us salvation, and we chose to follow him. We went his way rather than our own way. What if God did these two things? What if Paul uses the what ifs to introduce us to the truth of what God is actually teaching in these passages, in these verses? Yes, both groups prove a point about our God. There are those that God reserves for judgment, as hard as that is to hear. And he will show his wrath and his power. He patiently, patiently waited. They didn't choose him. They continued to harden their hearts. You want to harden your heart? Okay. I'll help you harden your heart. Others respond. For those who don't, wrath, he uses his power. We see the side of God that's filled with wrath and power and great patience. Judgment comes for sin. But there's another side where judgment does not come because this God is also a God of love and he offers mercy. In both sides, we see the glory of God. Hard as that is to hear. We see a God of justice and we see a God of mercy. Which side are you on? Are you receiving his mercy or are you saying it should be your way and hardening your heart further? These are hard things to move our way through. People ask why God is not merciful to everyone. I ask the question, why is he merciful to any of us? Because we are not people who naturally pursue our God. Had his mercy not come, we would have never moved toward him. We would have never seen his mercy. We are not people who naturally always want to go to church with the best attitudes and to dig into his word because we're so excited about his Bible and it's so great. And who always turn to him immediately in prayer when we have issues in life. And people who are always and constantly thankful to God. This is the kind of people that we are. Does that sound like people who deserve salvation? 
We haven't even started talking about our sinful ways. We're just saying we are not naturally inclined toward God, and yet he still chooses to be merciful. Some of you wonder if God is patient and merciful toward you. The answer would be you are not yet in hell, so he is giving you more time. Waiting. Don't use the time to harden your heart. Use the time to realize there is one far bigger and greater than you. And this is why we worship him. If God were fully understandable to us, he wouldn't be that much greater than us. But his ways are so far beyond us. And so we gather and worshiped him. Verse 25, Paul now illustrates from the Old Testament example of Hosea, of all the crazy examples. Talk about patience. Um, Paul says, as he says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people, and I will call her, referring to Hosea's wife, I will call her my loved one. She's really not my loved one. Do you know the story of Hosea? Hosea, the prophet of God, spokesman for God. God is going to use him as an illustration of his divine patience toward us as humans. So he says to Hosea, I want you to go and I want you to marry this woman. And I'm telling you right now, she's not going to be faithful to you. She's going to become a prostitute. Marry her. Hosea obeys and he marries her. And sure enough, she becomes a prostitute. Hard. And then it gets harder. After a time of waiting to see if she'll turn around, God says to Hosea, now go take her back as your wife. Go take her back illustrative of God making mankind and we rebelled against him, his children, his own elect nation, the Jewish people, they rebelled against him and then he still went after them and brought them back. The patience of our God. He waits with patience. Second Peter chapter 3 verses 8 and 9. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends, that the, with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like a day. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Things do not run by your clock or mine. He waits much longer many times than what we think he should. Oh, why doesn't God step in and bring justice? He's waiting for more to come to repentance. The judgment of God is like a great volume of water held behind a great and a mighty dam. It is held back. He patiently waits. But do know that he is God and he is just and someday the floodgates open and judgment comes. Our God waits and provides opportunity for more to turn to him. He is perfect in his holiness, in his justice, in his timing, whether we see it or not. Yes, he is patient with us. Otherwise, we would be in hell. He gives us more opportunities to respond to him by faith.
Verse 27, Paul now turns his attention to Isaiah. And as he turns his attention to Isaiah, verse 27 says, Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of Israelites is like the sands of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. Even God's own chosen nation, only some of them will come to salvation. Some will not choose him. For the Lord will carry out his sentence on the earth with speed and finality. The text says, just as Isaiah said previously, unless the Lord Almighty had left us descendants, we would become like Sodom and Gomorrah. Folks, if he hadn't reached out with mercy, if he hadn't selected some of us, none of us would have been saved. We were all doomed. Whoever will may come. You have your questions. Come to him. He loves you. Whoever will, he tarries. His judgment has not yet fallen. In some ways, I want it to fall. In other ways, he's, no. More time. More time for people to turn. Do not harden your heart in this time. Come to him and embrace this God who is perfect and his ways are so far beyond our ways. The last question, summing up just the last few verses of this text, is perhaps the most important question of all. Is God just to focus salvation in Jesus? Is God really just to only offer us salvation through Jesus and not through our good works? Not through some other religion, only through Jesus? Paul says in verse 30, what then shall we say? The Gentiles, who didn't pursue any kind of righteousness at all, they obtained righteousness, they obtained salvation by faith. They get saved. And then the Jews, verse 31, Israel, who pursued and kept the laws of God, the commandments of the Old Testament, they didn't get salvation. How is that fair? And Paul is saying they tried for the wrong reasons, verse 32. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but by their own works. They thought they could be good enough to get their own salvation by keeping the law. The text says they stumbled over the stumbling stone. The stumbling stone is Jesus. As it is written, see... I lay in Zion a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And, one, and the ones who trust in him will never be put to shame. Jesus is the approach God uses to provide a humanity that is under condemnation and totally lost and will not be saved. Jesus is the one way he offers for salvation. So you're walking down the road of life. The path is fairly narrow. And before you in the path, there's a big rock. Will you climb on the rock and stand on it? Or will you stumble over it? Jesus becomes the stumbling block for some and the rock upon which the rest of us stand. 
First Peter chapter 2, verses 7 and 8 say, Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. This stone is so precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone that caused men to stumble in a rock that makes them fall, some trip over the rock, and some stand upon it. Where are you today? Come every soul by sin oppressed. There's mercy with the Lord. And he will surely give you rest by trusting in his word. Just believe him. His ways are far beyond our ways. We know we are not perfect. We know that he is perfect. We know this is going to mean for conflict. There will be things that he does that we do not understand. We will have to trust him for that. For he is perfect, and we are not. And some people don't want to hear that. And their hearts just harden more. Are you standing on the rock? Or are you tripping over it? This God, who is perfect, knew that there was no way of salvation in our own good deeds. So he sent his son Jesus, and he punished him for our sin. And if we will come to God and say, I was wrong, I humble myself to you. I realize I need a savior. I believe Jesus was punished for my sin you'll be forgiven and you will stand on the rock rather than stumbling over it. Father, thank you for this very incredible passage that so challenges us, so pushes us. And I pray that for each of us we will find your path of humbling ourselves before you, the perfect one, we need your help. We need your mercy. We thank you for your patience with us. And I pray for those in the sound of my voice today here in this auditorium as well as those watching on YouTube that they might find your mercy. For there is salvation in no other name given among men whereby we must be saved. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.